Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to be covering the killers and victims of the Texas killing fields from the 1970s. If you've been listening for a while, you know that we've already covered the Calder Road and the unsolved cases from the Texas killing fields. As always, you don't have to listen to the other episodes first to listen to this one, but you might like to. So we're going to start with the same intro in case that you're new to this. So we have some parameters to our research. We looked at victims on the stretch of I-40 between Galveston and League City. In our research, we found 47 women who have disappeared or been murdered from 1974 to 2020. Their ages range from 12 to 57 years old at the time of their disappearance. And so along Calder Road in League City, Texas, there is a small field that's been dubbed the Texas Killing Fields because the remains of four women have been found there. A larger expanse has begun to be known as the Texas Killing Fields, which includes not just that field, but also the entire stretch of highway from Galveston to Houston and the area surrounding it. Yeah, so it's not just a tiny little field, as it sounds like. It's a big space. Yeah. And so today we're going to be covering just the 70s, but we're going to have later episodes on the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And stick around to the end of the episode. We're going to just chat about our Patreon and how you can support this show if you've been loving it. So let's get into it. Okay, so the first case we're going to talk about is Rhonda, or she went by Renee Johnson and Sharon Shaw. And Renee was only 14 at the time of her disappearance, and Sharon was 13. They both went missing on August 4th of 1971. They had left that morning, and they were heading to Galveston. These two were always together, so they were like inseparable friends, did most things together. They had gotten a ride with a neighbor into town. Can I just tell you, I think from all of the cases we've looked at, whenever I hear that anything happened with a neighbor, I am immediately suspect. Like from the get, I'm like, a neighbor? Because it's like, it's the neighbor or the husband at all times. Well, yeah, I would think the same thing. But these two were a little different from your average teenager. These ones not only would get rides from people they knew like neighbors, but they also hitchhiked a lot. So like if they were offered a ride by someone, sometimes they would prefer hitchhiking to the same place instead of getting a ride from a trusted person. Wild. It freaks me out. I can't imagine liking doing that. But you know, 70s, a different time, maybe. I don't know. But they enjoyed it. The girls were told to be home for lunch. So they were going out for a bit. They were supposed to be back for lunch. There is a book that I read by Catherine Casey called Deliver Us. And they actually interviewed one of the girl's friends named Glenda Willis. And Glenda said she had met them late that morning at their usual hangout spot, which was 39th and Seawald Boulevard. They got into Glenda's car and then they drove along the seawall to meet up with some other friends. It was almost time for them to go back. But Glenda said, well, I'm not actually going back yet. So they decided, "Okay, we'll get another ride. Glenda dropped both the girls off in front of the flagship hotel because they were going to just hitchhike back home. Glenda said if they decided to stay, that she would take them home at 5.30 later on. They agreed, okay, we'll come back out afterwards. During their day, they also made a stop at Wick's Ski School. And one of the owners was actually interviewed in that book that I just talked about. And her name was Johnny Wicks. And when she was interviewed, she was actually in her 90s at the time. They had asked her and her husband, Sam, about the disappearance of the girls. And the neighbors of the Wick Ski School said that they had saw the girls leave. 
and walked towards 61st Street, which would have led to the beach. So that's the last time that they had seen the girls because, again, they were regulars, so it was easy for them to recall the girls being there. Now, remember, Glenda said, I'll pick you up at 530. Here's our meeting spot. 530 rolls around. They never show. She waited a little bit, and then she just went home. She figured they're off doing something, or they just didn't come back out. Then the girl's parents called Glenda to see if she had seen them. Now, she was a really good friend and didn't want to get them in trouble. So she just made excuses to cover for them, which is sad. And you're like, oh, what a good little friend. But you're like, maybe this could have helped. I think they were already dead by the time she was making excuses and being like the chillest of friends. So I hope that she hasn't like held that guilt because regardless of when she told Sharon's mother they were where they were. That I just meant more so like clues, like maybe more clues could have been gathered. For sure. For sure. But yeah, definitely not her fault. So days later, the mothers continued to call Glenda and she covered. Then Glenda actually started to get worried like, where are my friends? Sharon's mom then went to Glenda's house and then she finally just opened up and said, I don't know where they are. And that's when the missing persons reports were filed. One of the friends suggested that maybe they ran away to California because they had friends that were moving there and friends thought, well, maybe they just left town. They had said that they had wanted to run away to California and they had mentioned several times to these friends that they also wanted to run away to California and do kind of that same thing, that beach life. They were 13 and 14. I wasn't alive during the 70s and I know that it was a really chill time. But were 13 and 14 year olds setting off on their own and starting a new life in Cali at that point? That seems bizarre to me. I think they were a little older, like the the friends that had left were a little older, but I feel like they just weren't happy with what they were doing and wanted more of that beach lifestyle. I mean, like what kid doesn't hate where they live? Isn't it part of adolescence to hate where you are? <laughs> Probably. Yeah, <laughs> that's something you need to check off. But uh, yeah, I think it was, you know, a dream that they had and maybe they wanted to do it later on. But I could see how if other friends are like, well, our friends just left, maybe they went too. So on January 3rd, 1972, which 30 miles away from Galveston, two teenage boys were rowing down a drainage ditch in a small boat and they spotted a skull on the bank of the overflow ditch. This area was geographically similar to where the bodies of two other girls had been found, Maria Johnson and Debbie Ackerman. Law enforcement investigated the scene and divers searched the water near where the skull had washed up. The ME concluded that the skull was from a Caucasian girl who was between the ages of 13 and 17 years old. There's a thick layer of silt because there had been a hurricane in the previous year. Cadaver dogs and heavy equipment were utilized to look for more of the remains. Law enforcement found more teeth, a left arm bone, and a sacrum, which is a large triangular bone at the base of the spine. The skull was identified as Renee's nine days after it was discovered. The sun and the water had bleached her bones, so it was believed that she had died months earlier. So they weren't able to find more bones or other remains, but they did find a bit of jewelry that had belonged to the girls. Glenda confirmed that it was Renee's when they found it. Sharon's remains were found about a half mile from where Renee's skull had been found. And they were found by a man who was walking along the banks of the bayou. The bayou is where the drainage ditch was draining to. So it makes sense that it would be there. Yeah. The remains were identified as Sharon through dental records. And the Emmy ruled the girl's cause of death as undetermined, but also noted that it appeared to have been homicide given the circumstances of the case. 
In September of 1971, a headless and footless torso was found in the same area. The body had a Jericho shirt, which was a local surf shop that the girls also tended to go to. The body was misidentified as belonging to a boy who had been missing in the same area, but later was found alive. So some folks later on wondered if maybe that was Renee's body. But when the Harris County ME office set to test the remains against Renee's DNA, the torso and DNA evidence could not be found. So what I understood is, yeah, they thought it was a boy. Later on, I forget how long the exact time frame the boy is found alive, right? So in the meantime, they probably had it under this boy's information. But what I don't understand is how did they lose it altogether? Okay, well, first off, like if it's if it's a body that has flesh... If they had like a blackout and something happened to the refrigeration, I would imagine that would happen. But also, if it was bones, I don't know what bone storage looks like. But I would imagine that like, say there was a flood or a fire or something happened to the office, or even if they just reorganized, it could get lost in the shuffle, which is disgusting. But it feels like a weird clerical error. That or possibly my thought goes to maybe they buried it under unidentified somewhere and just lost which unidentified remains maybe but either way it's tragic and horrible yeah agreed so we're gonna shift a little bit and we're gonna talk about michael lloyd self and i think this is one of the most interesting arrests and trial and post-trial situations that we've looked at so far because there's a lot of hmm perhaps this wasn't handled great but there's procedural wrinkles where if they just would have done the thing right There wouldn't have been the questions later on. We'll get to an appeal that argues that the counsel was ineffective. We'll talk about interrogation techniques, um, (laughs) documentation, all these things, competency, whether the person was even competent to stand trial. And so I thought it's an interesting case and that it brings up so much. So to start, before the girls were even murdered in 1970, Michael Lloyd Self was arrested for three charges of what they called window peeping. And he agreed to psychiatric treatment in lieu of the charges. And this is going to make sense why I bring this up, because it's the same people arresting him over and over. So they have this kind of idea about who he is and what he does. So additionally, the police chief, Don Morris, before he was the police chief, he was a security guard. And he had said that he had caught Self looking up girls' skirts as they walked up the stairs. He also said that Self, who was a volunteer firefighter, was stealing gasoline from the fire trucks and that he had also arrested him for marijuana possession. So as far as he's concerned, he's a repeat offender on these tiny offenses. The gasoline, like, it doesn't really fit window peeping, looking up skirts, gasoline theft. Yeah. And marijuana. I mean, that's irrelevant here. So as far as Don Morris is concerned, this is a guy who just can't fit into social norms. That's how it seems to me. On June 9th of 1972, Self is questioned about the murders of Renee and Sharon at his work. And because he doesn't want to talk there, he agrees to go to the police department to have a discussion. It's also important to note that people in the area describe Self as being, quote, brain damaged. Interesting. I don't know what that means. Interviews were conducted by Police Chief Don Morris and Assistant Chief Tommy Deal. Hours after he got to the police station, just to be questioned, he signed a written confession for the murders. An attorney was appointed to Self, and he advised Self to not talk to law enforcement unless he was present. Solid advice. Self said that he wanted to take a polygraph examination to prove his innocence. And his counsel was like, don't do it. And what we've talked about before is that they're highly unreliable. 
if he even had just a nervous disposition because of all of his history with Chief Morris, which would be completely reasonable, that could have given him a false reading in it. Very bizarre. That same afternoon, they filed charges and they took nude photographs of him. Interesting. I don't, maybe that's a part of booking. I don't know. So they say that Self directed the police to the location of where the remains had been found. And we'll get into more about why we're like, hmm, interesting. So the next day, only part of the interrogation is taped. So there's a record, but not a full record. Self is moved to the county jail. On June 12th, more law enforcement officers question Self about the murder. A polygraph is conducted and he signs a second confession for the murders, which I thought was really interesting because why would you keep having someone sign confessions? Unless they're adding something. Unless they're adding something. Right. So on the 23rd of June, Self directs another deputy sheriff to the locations he described in his second confession, which included the area where Shaw and Johnson's remains were found. Weird, right? So there's these strange things that are happening, right? Like two confessions, nude photographs, only part of the interrogation being taped. So let's talk about the trial. Self's counsel moved to exclude both confessions from the trial, but the court said that they were voluntarily given, so they were admissible. And Self said that when he signed that he only signed the second confession because he had signed the first one and that the first one had been coerced. And we'll get into more on how that was. So in May of 1973, he found that Self was guilty of murder and he was sentenced to life in prison. That's sad. I mean, and we say sad because we know everything that comes next. But, you know, in so many cases, we're like, good, he's in prison, right? And so next comes several appeals in which he does not prevail, including for ineffectual counsel. So he argues that there's pro- that his counsel didn't do a good enough job. His appeals denied. He appeals on everything that he can. And then he files his habeas corpus petition as And so a habeas corpus petition is kind of more like habeas corpus remedy, if you will. And it's a federal court's review of an individual's incarceration to determine whether it's unconstitutional. And it can only be requested once state relief has been exhausted. So all the appeals. And so he filed several habeas corpus petitions. And that's where we get a lot of this, the the information that I'm going to go over now, because this stuff wasn't included in the trial, which is part of the problem. Because just as a general note, if you don't raise it in the trial, you cannot raise it in the appeal, right? Because when you appeal, you're appealing the trial, right? Or some aspect of the trial. And so if you don't bring it up, you can't say, oh, hey, I should have said this before, but I didn't, right? And that's part of the problem. In his various habeas corpus petitions, Self alleges that he was threatened and physically abused during the interrogations and that he confessed just out of fear. He also talks, and we'll, we'll get to it in a little bit, that he didn't think he was going to be charged, which is an interesting defense. So the alleged force that he says was used during the in- interrogations was that they threatened him with a nightstick. They rammed the nightstick into his abdomen that he was hit along his shoulders and back, and basically that he was forced to play Russian roulette. So an officer took five bullets out of the chamber of the gun, spun it, and held the gun to Self's head before telling him that he would kill him if he tried to run. Well, and what you had said earlier, that people said that he was, quote unquote, brain damaged. So if he did have some sort of like mental disorder or something wrong with him, and they're putting this guy through that, and basically just trying to pin it on someone to close the case... There's so much wrong with that. Not only a guy that didn't do it, they're coercing into saying he did, but also the real killers out there and they're just not looking for him anymore. Exactly. And that's, I think, one of the most problematic things is when you hear police zone in on a person and you're like, 
ooh, where are you getting this? Because from everything that we both read, with the exception of him knowing where the remains were found, which is something that police knew and could have led him to know that information, he didn't offer any details that, that he should have, like, quote unquote, known. And so here's another extra wrinkle. Per self, Assistant Chief Deal said that he would make sure that Self got psychiatric treatment if he signed the confessions, which is what happened previously when he had the, quote, window peeping charges was that he got psychiatric treatment instead of being officially charged. So it's reasonable that, like, that might be in his head. And so other people who were police officers at that time witnessed abusive behavior and Russian roulette techniques being used, which like, go ahead and say something if you see something, guys. So there was testimony of a former Webster policeman named David Coburn, and he testified at the habeas hearing, but this wasn't included in the trial, which is part of the reason that's a problem. And he said that self could be easily intimidated by authority and that folks knew that that Chief Morris was a bully and that he threatened to, quote unquote, get self and that self was afraid of him. Interesting. And also that it had been rumored that self had, quote, some sort of relationship with Morris's wife. Uh Uh-huh. Coburn had witnessed Morris abuse prisoners and heard him bragging about it. Then to refute that, a councilman came in, Councilman Shapiro, testified that Coburn was an alcoholic and he was rough with prisoners. So like, who's right here? Another former Webster policeman currently working at U.S. Customs when he testified, he said that he was present for the June 9th interrogations. The first time he saw self, he was at ease and he was concerned with punishment and kept saying, like, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And then he left for 45 minutes or so. And when he came back, he knew that Chief Morris had been alone with self. And self seemed like significantly different. Like he was nervous and upset. Morris was slamming the nightstick in the palm of his hand and threatening him and using profanity. And he saw this. Morris also told self that he could not leave the station until he confessed. Right. The pattern would continue. He didn't see like actual physical abuse or the Russian roulette t- technique, but he had seen him use it on another prisoner before. So it wouldn't be completely out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. And there were other witnesses that testified at the habeas corpus hearing saying that self appeared scared and that he likely did confess out of fear and that Morris had abused prisoners and self's story about the Russian roulette incident seemed credible. Now, both Chief Morris and Assistant Chief Deal both testified for the state at the suppression of evidence hearing because they they, I think they tried to bring part of this up either in the trial or the appeal. But neither of them were present for the habeas corpus hearing. And why was that, Amanda? Well, they were doing something bad. They both were incarcerated for bank robbery. So they're stand-up citizens is what I'm hearing. And so Morris continued to deny the coercion and abuse. And so just interesting, some notes about the habeas corpus petition. It's a federal remedy. So it's tried in federal court. The district court had decided to grant the writ and order self's release. But the decision was then overturned by the appellate court. Self died in prison in 2000. But two years before that, Ed Bell confessed to murdering Sharon Shaw and Rhonda Renee Johnson. And we mentioned them earlier, but Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson were also killed by Bell. So just interesting that it was like a similar kind of area. We're going to do a full episode on Ed Bell because just because we have enough to talk about because he had so many victims that were in the Texas killing fields that it's its own 40 minutes or so. And this is just like, I think, one of the saddest parts. So let's let's wrap it back up to Glenda. She said in her interview with Catherine Casey for Deliver Us, I wish I'd known about Mike's self. I would have told him that he didn't do it. So heartbreaking. 
it's heartbreaking on so many levels because first off, that means Sharon and Renee, their murderer, got to go free until he was arrested for other crimes. A long time. More time than he should have been able to. Yeah. More time than he should have been. And that always makes us angry just generally. And then secondly, like self served decades in prison for a crime that he didn't commit and our system failed him. Yeah. And our system made him sign things that weren't necessarily from him. Yeah. And I just I find that so incredibly heartbreaking. That's a rough and one of the longest ones that we have to talk about today. So they're all pretty bad. This whole area is just when I think about Texas now, and I understand Texas is gigantic, but this whole area just stresses me out knowing that it's still just open land and everything's just fine there. I live in Baltimore, Maryland, which people sometimes call body more murder land. But when I think of Texas, I'm like, it's where they kill. Because like in my head, like Texas is just straight serial killers and barbecue. Like that's all I've got. Accurate. So the next person we are going to talk about is Allison Craven. And on November 9th, 1971, Allison's mother returned home from running errands to find her daughter missing. At the time, Allison was 12 or 13 years old, but a lot of sources conflict on her age. Their apartment was near the I-45, and her mother quickly reported her missing. Her partial remains were found on January 29th, 1972, so a couple months later, in a nearby field. The rest of her remains were found in Pearland, Texas. Seems weird that they were scattered. One of the neighbors, later on, Henry Doyle Shufflin confessed to the abduction and the murder of Allison. He took her from the laundry room. Sounds really sad. You would think doing laundry would just be this innocent, normal, day-to-day thing. Yeah, like you should, your kids should be safe just like running down to the laundry room in your apartment complex. He was convicted of her murder after his confession. So at least there was some justice to this one. And we talked about this in our Texas Killing Fields Unsolved episode, but the information we have is limited to what exists in the world. And for cases where they find the perpetrator really quickly, some of these, like there's very little information. Like I didn't see a ton out there. And I just think the various ways in which the the volume by which some are covered while others aren't is odd to me. It is. And I still think, too, when you look at Texas Killing Field, a lot of the ones that don't have a lot of information out there, you don't really see them come up on a lot of the lists, too. And I feel like their stories deserve to be told as well, even though there might not be as many details. Yeah. And that's why when we when we do these episodes, if we just have a little bit of information, well, we're going to include that just a little bit of information because her name deserves to be said. So our next case is the murder of Linda Faye Sutherland. So Linda was 21 years old at the time of her disappearance, and she was last seen at a lounge on Telephone Road on November 4th, 1971. And she was there buying alcohol. Now, a few days later, on November 7th of 1971, Linda's partial nude remains were discovered by a woman who was riding horseback. And her cause of death was from being shot by shotgun pellets. But none were recovered from the scene. Strange. She'd also been raped, strangled with pantyhose, and beaten. There was a trail of bloodstains and flattened grass near the shoulder of the nearest road. Her car was found with bloodstains and signs of a struggle, but fingerprints had been wiped clean. Several witnesses who were truck drivers said they saw her pulled over and that she was talking to like a big guy with a lightly colored wrecker, which sounds like a tow truck to me when they say wrecker because I hear wrecker throughout this. And so one of Sutherland's friends said her ex-boyfriend had threatened to kill her when they broke up, but he was with another girl the night of the murder and he passed a lie detector test. 
So they were thinking it wasn't him. That means nothing to me, right? I'm like, "Mm, people lie. And sometimes people are good at lying. So a short while later, a woman came into the police station to report a rape, but she changed her mind. The officer who had originally taken the report had mentioned the she had talked about like who it was, what he drove and all this, but she had changed her mind. And so the officer who had taken that statement had just casually mentioned it to the detective who was investigating Linda's murder. And so the detective talked to that officer who had originally taken the report because there were allegations that were levied against Henry Latham and he had driven a wrecker. And a witness for another murder in Texas gave the description of a man who the victim was with and it matched Latham. So police examined Latham's wrecker and his shotgun, and both had traces of human blood. Latham said another man, Tony Napa, had killed Linda using Latham's shotgun. When confronted, Napa said, that's a damn lie. We killed her together after we raped her, and Harry killed Gypsy too. I was with him. So ridiculous that they're both like, no, it was that guy. We both did really bad things, but I'm going to tell you that we both did really bad things together. But he's the one that ultimately did it. Together. Yeah. And so per Napa, Harry said no girl was going to testify against him again. And I agreed. He said any girl he had sexual intercourse with, he was going to kill afterwards. Okay. Lantham suggested that Linda join he and Napa for a drink when they had encountered her in Houston. And then she said no. So they followed her to the lounge and they jumped her in her car. So while holding her at gunpoint, Lantham told her to drive to an old house and Napa followed behind in the wrecker. Napa said, we both knew we were going to kill the girl when we took her there. She begged us not to. She said to do anything but not shoot her. Napa confessed to trying to kill Linda by beating her with a club and strangling her with her own pantyhose. He then shoved her down into like a gully. Horrific. And she was still alive. So she crawled out from under it and went under a bridge. And when she came up on the other side, that's when Lantham shot her. Disgusting. Horrific. I hate it so much. So Lantham was convicted of murder and sentenced to 25 years. 1971, Lantham tried to escape from the Harris County Jail and he was shot in the chest. So he died. Napa was convicted of murder and served 15 years out of his 50-year sentence before being released. Wild. So our last set for the 70s, it includes a killer that you may have heard of before, and his name's Henry Lee Lucas. We're going to talk about him briefly. There's so much we could say on him, but we're really going to focus on broad strokes and his relation to the Texas killing fields. So on May 21st of 1977, Suzanne Bowers, known as Susie, left her grandparents' house to walk home. She was 12 years old at the time. Her plan was to get changed into her bathing suit grab her bike, and ride to go see her friends at Stewart Beach, which is about three miles away. She'd asked her grandfather for a ride, but he was like, the exercise will be good for you, which hurts my heart because he probably held on to that for a very long time. And like in the book that I read, they they talked about the grandfather and I'll say it in a bit, but it killed him. Yeah, of course. So her friend Sarah never saw her at the beach and Susie's grandmother reached out to Sarah to let her know that she never made it back to the house. Susie's parents reported her missing to Galveston. And they said, oh, she probably ran away. And again, that trend continues. A lot of the girls in the Texas killing field, the police immediately say, oh, young girl, they ran away. Yeah. And her parents dismissed that because they were like, "Okay, if she ran away, why is all of her stuff here? Because all of her belongings were there, including the money that she had been saving for a choir trip she planned to go on. Yeah. If you're going to run away, you're going to take the money that you have. So almost two years later, her skeletal remains were found on March 25th, 1979. I feel for her family so much. Two boys on dirt bikes found her in a remote area of Alta Loma, Texas. 
Also, this is not far from where Colette Wilson disappeared. We haven't told her story yet, but we did mention her in one of our other Texas Killing Field episodes. Susie was identified with her dental records. She did have three bullet-sized holes and a scratch mark on her skull. They say bullet-sized holes, but don't believe she was shot, so they're not sure what it could have been. Her friend Sarah kept in contact with Susie's family throughout the years. And she was also interviewed in the book. Here's the part that I'm like, it just made me so sad. She told the author that when Susie's grandfather died, his last word was Susie's name. Oh, no, my heart. So here's here's the interesting part. We all wonder, well, who did it? And unfortunately, I personally don't believe we could ever be certain because of who Lindsay brought up, Henry Lee Lucas. He was dubbed the confession killer. There's also a Netflix series about him. It's very interesting. So... He ended up confessing to her murder, but there's a lot of speculation on the fact of if he did it or if he was just confessing. So he was already apprehended, right? There was a time where police were essentially taking him on trips around the country and looking into cases that, you know, he could have been part of. And he did say, well, yeah, I I think I remember murdering Susie. And just to give you a little bit more background on him, I know we said we're just going to touch on him, but he confessed to over 600 murders. But he was only charged for a few. Authorities felt that there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute Lucas for Susie's death, even with the confession. And just to note, officers who worked the investigation said that Lucas gave details about her death that only someone involved could know. And that includes leading officials to the isolated site where the body was found. And that's according to one of the Texas Rangers, Joe Harrelson. One of the things that I read in several different articles about Lucas was that he was known in prison as the person who you could give details to and he would go confess for the murder. So him knowing details means nothing, which blows my mind because normally they're like, oh, they knew something only the killer would know. But here he was just collecting information and just confessing for like the sake of it. Right. All the time. Yeah. And that goes for not even just poor Susie, but for so many other murders he was doing this for. And he was for a time coined the most prolific serial killer in America. And then after they started to put the puzzle pieces together and go, oh, wait, he didn't actually do a lot of this. He was just a pathological liar. Yeah. Over 600. If he had actually killed 600 people, I feel like we would know about him, I would hope. So according to Sarah, once he confessed, they essentially wrote the case off. They're like, well, we got her killer. We can't prosecute him, but we know it's him and he's already behind bars for other reasons. She, however, thought that the dates didn't match what actually happened. So she always had this little thought in the back of her head, like he didn't do it. So Because of that, she even wrote him in prison and he denied it to her and claimed that he only confessed to get extra favors from authorities. So confessions got him things like access to TV, fast food, walking freely through police stations and cigarettes. So that could have contributed to why he confessed to so many. That's one of the reasons, right? The confessions also gave him a lot of attention. And I'm not, again, we're not deep diving into him, but he had a very, very bad childhood. And some say mentally that he was so starved for attention, this was a way for him to gain attention from everyone. So again, some say it's the perks of the attention. Lucas later said that he was coerced into making statements like these and that he was fed information about the slayings to make it appear like he knew the details. But again, he lies a lot. So you're like, was it someone told him in prison? Was it he read about certain things and was able to recite it? Was he part of it? It's all up in the air at this point. 
According to that same Texas Ranger Harrelson, he said that for at least all of the investigations that he was a part of, that was definitely not the case. They did not feed him information to get him to confess. So maybe for the Galveston area ones, maybe that's the case. I hate it. When he wrote a letter back to Sarah, he said, quote, you asked me if I'm guilty of killing your friend. The answer is no. I did give a false confession to the murder, but I was not guilty of it. I was given all the evidence about it, which is interesting because the Texas Ranger says no, that did not happen. So you're like, how did he know on this one? Also, I mean, I was given all the evidence about it. Maybe it wasn't Texas Rangers. Maybe it was the person who did it was in prison for something else and told him. Right. Well, Sarah continued her own investigation throughout the years, and her and Susie's grandmother would call and discuss their notes and compare. Get yourself a friend like Sarah. So she at one point called the man who leased the property where the remains were found, and he had mentioned that he had seen two vehicles in the field about the same time that Susie disappeared. Just another quick note about Susie's grandmother. She left Susie's room the way it was when she disappeared until the day she died. Oh, man. That really hits you because like if she was found, she would have been like obviously much older. But like that, I always find that fascinating. Like when you hear those stories, because like that's giving up hope. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's it's making it real. Like they found her remains, but it's real if you get rid of the room. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, I have been fortunate in my life to there be no child that I've known who's died. Right. But like, how do you grieve a child? I would imagine that that would be the way. Right. That you would like go into their space and think about them and remember them and that that would be how you would have to do it because like they existed for such a short time now i'm crying i know this one it was a hard one when especially when reading the book and you're like they found the body you know they laid her to rest all of that but for the family and the friends this never ended i also so very desperately want a television show with tim miller and sarah where they're researching Texas killing fields unsolved and like figuring stuff out. Oh, how wonderful would that be? So and if you don't know who Tim Miller is, our first Texas killing field episode is where we dive into him. Yeah. And we mentioned him in I don't know any every crime episode because he's also the founder of Texas EquiSearch and helps advocate for the families of victims. Yeah, all the time. So Henry Lee Lucas was given the death penalty for a different murder that took place in 1979. So Just a quick note about that one. The murder was of a woman that they called Orange Socks, who was just finally identified in 2019 as Deborah Jackson. When I was looking up Texas Killing Fields a long time ago, I saw a little bit on her and nowhere was talking about how she was identified. And then when I just went to refresh and like look up if anything's changed, they were like, oh, now we need to add this to our articles because she was finally identified and it was through DNA again. So just kind of a fun thing about that is now her family finally knows what happened to her. So here's the thing. Once he was given the death penalty in 1998, George W. Bush, who was governor of Texas at the time, announced that he would, quote, follow the recommendation of the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles and commute Lucas's death sentence. Basically, the board voted based on multiple investigations that raised some doubt in whether or not he was actually involved in the murder. The investigation found cash checks and work timesheets showing that he was in Florida at the time of the murder. 
So even though they were like, okay, maybe he wasn't part of this one, there are some that they could have maybe tried for, but didn't because he was already on death row. And so it's it's very frustrating. Yeah. And we've talked about that time and time again, that prosecutors may decide not to press charges on, you know, someone who they have a pretty rock solid case against because the person's already going to be executed, serving life in prison. And there's there's no additional penalty that can be given. And so it would be great for like families to have that closure, but that's not what the justice system is doing. Like they're supposed to take people off the street who do bad things. And so, yeah, that's infuriating, though. Right. Yeah. So he was in there. Obviously, there's other reasons, other things that he was paying time for. But at the time, Susie's mother, Patsy, was devastated by the news because even though he had never been prosecuted for her daughter's death, she wanted him to pay. And she truly believed he's the one that took her daughter. He had also been linked to six different murders in the Galveston area. So what happened is his sentence got changed to life in prison. And ultimately, he died in prison. He died on March 12th, 2001. And just an interesting thing I found, he's buried at Joe Bird Cemetery, which is the state prison cemetery. It's the same place that Kenneth McDuff is buried. And as a reminder, Kenneth McDuff is the killer that we talked about in our New Year Same Me episode in January. Yeah. Lucas's grave is unmarked due to vandalism and theft, which sure, I don't care. He doesn't need to be marked. One last interesting note. I know I said we're not deep diving on him, but something that I just found is fascinating is that the man that Lucas spent a lot of time with, his name's Otis Toole, he ended up confessing to the killing of Adam Walsh. And Adam Walsh is John Walsh's son. He's the host of America's Most Wanted, but he too was never convicted for that particular murder. His son's murder is horrific. But just to give you a sense of like who he hung out with, he spent a lot of time with Otis Toole and his family, and it it's just sickening. Yeah, yeah, it really, really is. And so Amanda and I, many moons ago, began our Texas Killing Field research when we were just the babiest of true creeps. And we've looked into so much of this and we've really worked hard to try to put it into like palatable portions because it is, I think, one of the most overwhelming things that we've researched and looked at because it's so heavy because there's not good news in it. No, there's not good news. There's multiple murderers. You're seeing a lot of dead children. Not all of them are children, but a lot of them are children. 12, 13, that's a child. Exactly. No, you're so, so right. And so we will have more episodes in the Texas Killing Field where we talk about different decades and we'll have, we do plan to have an episode on Ed Bell. So if you remember the Texas Killing Field Unsolved, just as a general note, there is a section of our website called Ongoing Cases where you can look at the folks whose cases are still unsolved. If you wanted to take a peek, maybe you've been around Texas during any time from the 70s to now and you have a piece of information that might help solve a case. And as always, we'll be talking about this in our Patreon-only Facebook group, The Bat Bonfire. So we talked about in the beginning of the show. We're also going to go over for just a few minutes all of our Patreon offerings and tiers. Very exciting. First tier starts at only a dollar, and it's our mittens tier. And that gives you access to what Lindsay just talked about, the Bat Bonfire. That's our Patreon-only Facebook group where we interact with our listeners, talk about the cases, and also get ideas sometimes. So we just recently took an idea from the Bat Bonfire and turned it into an episode. That's true. We did. So our our next tier is our $5 tier, and it's a jump ghost. I love that name. And so with that, you get access to the Bat Bonfire. 
You also get a sticker when you join and then every year on your Patreon anniversary month. Yep. And it's a new sticker. So if you already have a True Creep sticker, it'll be a different one. The next one is our Fire Yeti tier and it's $8 per month. And that gives you access to the Bat Bonfire and an annual custom fall card for all the members that join by September 15th. We're in June. It's it's approaching <laughs> and it'll be a really fun card. We're going to take a lot of different themes from our episodes and create something amazing. You also get a sticker when you join and then also the sticker every year on your Patreon anniversary. The last here is my absolute favorite name, obviously calling back to our second episode of Black Forest, which so many moons ago. But the Vortex Bouncer is $25 a month. You get all the goodies that we already talked about. Plus, you get a t-shirt when you join and a t-shirt every year on your anniversary month, which will also be a different t-shirt. And also, speaking of t-shirts, if you head over to our website, truecreeps.com, and click merch, we have some really fun merch, including ones that say, I'm not a scientist, and I don't like it. (laughs) And you can get those designs on totes, bags, hoodies, baby onesies, all the things. So you can take a peek at that. And as a special note, we love our Patreons, and we so, so appreciate your support in the show. And we really do love you guys. We do. And I love our discussions. Yes, 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 yes. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thank you for listening to Cool Creep. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, drewcreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 